earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. The baby, please. I have a dream. Should we consider in every nation a fundamental restructuring of economic, political, social, and religious institutions? We humans are capable of greatness. What is in your life's blueprint? Hi everyone, welcome to Cosmic, human beings on planet Earth trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. It feels like there's not enough fish in the ocean, or is there? I'm not sure anymore. Our guest today is going to tell us everything about it. Cosmic is a new network for changemakers working on urgent social and environmental issues. And this is our podcast where I receive guests from all around Europe. We talk about change, we listen to good music, we escape, we learn a lot as well as trying to deconstruct how change happens in society and within people. My guest this week is Rebecca Hubbard from Our Fish. She specializes in ocean issues. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Camille. Brussels. It's uh, your favorite time of the year, right? Yeah, crazy time. Uh, uh, this is when we, um, you know, when when the EU ministers are negotiating the, the fishing uh, quotas. That's how much fish can be fished in European waters. Um, tough discussion. Every year we end up overfishing. And that's your, what your professional life is about, more or less, yes? That's right. Being sad that we're still deciding to overfish. Yeah. Right. So we're going to unpack what's, what's going on there. But let's start from the beginning. Um, you are originally from Australia. You live in Madrid. 
Uh, you've been with Greenpeace. Um, I don't know everything about uh, your life yet, and we don't need to know every everything. But um, you're an activist. That's how you call yourself. Yeah, um, I've basically been working on campaigns and activism since I finished university uh, many years ago. Yeah, at the end of the last century. Do you know why you got into activism? Um, yeah, I think there's two things. Uh, I mean, I grew up in, in a really beautiful part of Australia on the south coast of New South Wales, which is south of Sydney for anyone not from Australia. And uh, my, yeah, my dad was a farmer and also a surfer. So I spent a lot of time either in the ocean or climbing trees and kind of connecting to nature and what was happening around me. So I had a very strong connection to nature from mm. being a kid. And then, um, yeah, I just, I guess I, as, as I got older, I noticed that there was all these things that needed changing and it became fairly clear after going to uni that there was, for me, there was only one way to change it and that, because I tried right. very briefly with government and that was quite possibly one of the most depressing six months of my <laughs> professional career. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and, and, and for me, I felt like change uh, really could come from, I mean, people can make change from the inside, but you need a lot of pressure from the outside. And it became clear to me that nobody, like it's, it's difficult for politicians and governments to do that on their own without. Hey. Yeah. Um, what are the different themes that you've been working with across your career? Was it always related to the ocean in some way? or No, yeah, I've, I've worked across a number of issues. So I think the first campaign that I... Well, the first thing that I remember really caught my attention was uh, there was a big campaign in Australia against um, uranium mining in northern Australia at Jabaluka, which is beautiful Aboriginal-owned country. Mm. And that was a massive national campaign and that was really the thing that alerted me. But then really, I mean, I worked on uh, the destruction of ancient forests uh, against the nuclear reactor in Australia. I was once involved in a fantastic Greenpeace action where we invaded the, the oh, nuclear reactor. I want reactor. to know about this. Uh, um, yeah, and I've also worked on genetic engineering and marine conservation. But pretty much once I got into oceans campaigning, I... I got stuck there and I haven't moved for a while. Okay, so we are here um, in the Ton Hotel EU in, uh, in Brussels and it's an interesting place because this is where um, yeah, all the lobbying is going on at uh, that time of the year. Yeah. Uh, that's why we wanted to have the, the interview in the restaurant, in the bar where uh, there's Yeah, where all those interesting meetings happen and we're going to talk more about what's going on and what, are, what is at stake. La vie est incommodée 
un combat et nous sommes les combattants. Yeah. Do you speak any French at all? No. None. It means life is a, is a fight and we're, we are the fighters. Yeah. I'm sure you can relate to this. Like, tell, tell us about the fight right now in this hotel, that time of the year, with all those people around and um, yeah, how, how, how things work. Like, what, what does the change... Uh, mechanics look like uh, with overfishing so it's 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 a lot more gray than that beautiful music uh, talks about in terms of a fight uh, I mean basically what you have here is we're sitting in the middle of a, a very nice hotel uh, the ton it's it's got quite the reputation and basically what the fight looks like is the delegations from the different countries they're they're in brussels for this council meeting and then essentially representatives from the fishing industry come here and and also ngos now come here as well and and they they try to get access to the ministers to their staffers to the delegates and they try to have meetings with them and they try and get as much information out of them as possible and they try and push them to get as many fish as they can back so basically the whole purpose is to tell the minister at least uh, you know like that from the industry's perspective they're there to try and say essentially you know we want more fish we want more quota and then the minister has to go back to the group council meeting and and there's negotiations there right so um just for those who are not uh, familiar with um the issue of Uh, fish fisheries management um well fish is an, is a common resource uh, that we we share um between well different countries uh, in in european waters for instance and uh there are there's scientific advice very that very clearly defines how much fish are we 
uh, allowed or uh, supposed Shit. to yeah to fish in European waters. And uh, since 2014, uh, there is very clear um, there's a law, there's a common fisheries policy saying we should respect scientific advices, uh, scientific advice, and this is not happening. And there's this big deadline of 2020 where the law could be enforced or like, can you, can you tell us more about this countdown to 2020? Yeah. So essentially the EU fisheries law that you're talking about, it, it was signed off in 2013, this, this time, five years ago. And it says exactly as you say that, that the ministers should set the fishing limits according to scientific advice, which is the maximum that can be taken out of the fish stock uh, and it to be able to healthily reproduce in continuity into the future. Um, and essentially what happens is there's no scientists in the ton, huh? So the scientists don't come here to this no. hotel for lobbying. They're not here. Uh, they give their advice before. And then the ministers, in theory, what this law should have done is, is the law also said, okay, you follow scientific advice, you end overfishing by 2015 or by the latest at 2020. So we've had four years knowing that we should end overfishing and this all comes on the back of decades of overfishing of EU fish right. stops. This, this is why we got to the decision in, in 2013. It's because the industry was suffering, they were losing jobs, losing money, the fish stocks were terrible and they had to do something. So they made that decision but four years later, they have just constantly, because they've pushed back so much for the last four years, now they've only got one year to go and we're still quite a long way from ending overfishing. Can you, can you give, it, give us a sense for, like, how, how many out of all the fish stocks that are regulated, how, how many are still overfished today? Of the, of the stocks that have a total allowable catch, which is, you know, official limit that's set at this particular council meeting, uh, around 55% are either still being overfished at an annual rate or their fish stocks overfished. And so it's still not at a healthy level. Um, so over half... And they're the just they're just the ones that that have fishing limits set in in these meetings. There are other fish stocks that the EU fishes that we don't have information about, mm -hmm. and that don't have fishing limits. I mean, we're talking about a fairly poor state, unfortunately. It's crazy.
I would like to dive even deeper into this issue of you know um, decision making around overfishing or around the the Agrifish Council uh, meeting and all the lobbying that goes on around this just around us right now. I mean, we're uh, December 18th when this uh, interview was recorded and tonight is the night, as we say. <laughs> uh, every year it goes on, the negotiations, you know, they, the ministers lock themselves in that room. Um, we don't know what's going on. It's behind closed doors. <coughs> and they are uh, uh, talking, uh, negotiating until really late. They generally take a break around like 3, 4 a.m., and then they get back to it and we got the final an announcement the day after like 7 a.m. or something. What, um, so the dynamic, so they, they are heavily influenced by industry um, and they are basically uh, trying to defend the national interests. But there's also, there's something that's very interesting to me is that, you know, managing fish stocks, I mean, there have been many cases of uh, fish stocks being overfished and then the year after there's not enough fish and then the industry suffers um, so it's really um, kind of short-term uh, investments for mid to long-term benefits right this scientific advice uh, that that they receive every year why don't they get it are we really like short-term thinkers like that that much I think I think that's pretty much it I mean it, this is the question everybody asks why don't they get this I mean the, all of the economic studies all of the ecological studies show if you just make some decisions now for the short term then you will see actually quite quickly some very good benefits but it's a little bit it, what has become is a chicken and egg scenario I think because basically right now what the industry is saying is if you cut this quota, then we will lose jobs. Right. Okay? This, it's just jobs and money. We will lose jobs and money. And, but if we don't cut the quota now, in the future, you could lose more jobs and more money. And so by the, by the fisheries ministers constantly pandering to this national, very local, very short-term thinking they're actually just digging themselves deeper each year going forward. It makes it makes doesn't make it any easier. Right. They still they have to do the same thing again next year and the same thing again. But the the and the weird thing is is that because right now it means that for some of these fisheries, it, it's what you, they call overcapacity. There's too many boats chasing too few fish right now, mm -hmm. and if you cut some of that pressure, you can rebuild the stocks and then you can have more boats catching more fish right. but unless you do that short-term cut then you can't get the rewards in the future it's like mm. unless you save your money for your holiday you can't go on your holiday <laughs> right, right, right. you know there needs to be an investment up front and in uh, and the the national ministers are just continuously thinking short-term electoral cycle local politics etc and they're they're failing to make these what, courageous what decisions. I see. What, what does that tell you about human beings or <laughs> a, a certain type of human beings? Well, I think it's just another manifestation of what we all know about human beings, which is, yeah, immediate gratification seems to be our major, uh, our major thing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I mean, as we all know, political leaders, sometimes you get winners 
who are brave and strong and staunch and will do the right thing for everyone. And let, as you said before, I think it's a super important point. The people in this hotel lobby are guys in suits or jackets or whatever. <laughs> Lobbyists like jackets, as well. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, whatever they are. I mean, most of them are not guys that are out fishing every week for their family. Right. They're industry representatives and actually... And they, not only do they not represent the entire fishing industry, they rep- usually represent a, 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 pe- a part of that right. and often the most powerful part, which is not necessarily the most sustainable part. Right. But beyond that, they, they only represent an industry who exploits the resource of, of fish stocks. Mm. Um, but the owners of that resource are the EU citizens and the citizens of those countries. And without a doubt, almost... Reli- I mean, reliably, citizens say they want healthy oceans, they want sustainable fisheries, they want their kids' well-being looked after and their kids' inheritance looked after, natural inheritance looked after. You just got the support from uh, like 350,000 signatures uh, that you brought to the, to the council yesterday. And uh, yeah, people, I think it's quite an easy, uh, an, an easy issue uh, for people to understand. Yeah, I think I think it's it's not too difficult. It's a little bit challenging that people don't live in the ocean mm. and they don't necessarily see what it looks da- like down there. If you talk to some fishermen, I found actually the most interesting fishermen to talk to are those that are like 70 or 80 or older mm. and they've been fishing for 50 years and they've seen what it used to look like and then they see what it looks like now. And uh, it's a big, big change. Mm. I see. Well, maybe we can have one on the show one day. Yeah.
So, you know, I, I one thing I'd like to do is to step back a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you told us about how you, you got started with, with activism. Um, and that's something that we like to, to talk about because I think it's a very critical uh, component of how... Um, you know, more people get mobilized or organized in, in society to, to solve some of the social environmental challenges that we have. Can you, can you recall a moment in particular or someone you were hanging out with or is it a family thing? You told us about your father and your connection to the, or your family and your connection to, your, to, to nature, but there was probably a, a few moments that were defining in, you know, you deciding like, okay, that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to take on all the challenges, difficulties, uh, loneliness moments as well that we always uh, refer to on the show. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're a happy bunch. Yeah, that's why we're here, right? We're talking, <laughs> we're like in this, the corner of this hotel talking to each other and uh, just, yeah. No, but that's what Cosmic is about. Mm. It's about this, this cosmic connection that we all have in a way um, and we feel a bit <laughs> different. How, when, when did you realize that you were different in that sense? Oh, it's always obvious. <laughs> I actually went to school in a very, um, quite a conservative, lower socioeconomic area south of Sydney. Um, and I can tell you now there was very little activism in that town or in that region. And I mean, probably in that region there was, but certainly not in the town that I was in as a teenager. And I already felt quite isolated and confused about what everyone else was thinking about and why was that not really making sense? Um, so when I went to university and I did environmental science, environmental science, I, it, I, I kind of opened up and went, oh, look, here's all these other people thinking about this stuff. <laughs> wow, I'm not a complete lunatic after all. <laughs> right. I may be still a bit crazy, but at least I'm not on my own. Um, so I think that was useful and interesting, but actually I did have a, one very defining moment and <laughs> I forgot about it until just then. But I read the autobiography of Joan Baez, a, vo a Voice to Sing With, and I remember reading it and I think I was 19 and I was studying environmental science and I didn't really know what I was going to do, actually, and I thought about doing law and social work and I ended up getting into environmental science and... I wasn't actually really good at doing science, um, right. and I, but I liked the environmental stuff. And I read her book and it was, you know, she has a background, um, her family are Quakers. Mm. And it was, the f it was really the first story of activism that I'd really, I think, read or personally connected to. And it was about how, you know, her story and she had this background of Quakers and then she used her voice because she's a beautiful singer to tell the issues of the day. And she's, you know, very old folk singer. If people don't know her from America, sang with Bob Dylan and kind of right. hung out with that crew yeah. quite a lot. And, um, and it was fascinating because I read that book and it was like, I remember writing something to one of my very good friends and saying, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to be an activist and I'm going to fight for this shit because I'm just not going to sit back and, and just let it go. So let's dive into this. What do you think happened in you? Why could you relate to this? So there was your connection to nature, but was there, um, you know, 
why are you different in that sense from the other kids that were probably also in the same environment or same access to mm -hmm. the ocean and, and maybe like do you, do you, do you, can you think of anything and, and why, what did your parents think about this new direction <laughs> well I think that um, mm, I mean my parents have a very strong philosophy of go your own way mm -hmm. be yourself whatever you do if you do what you love uh, and, f and, and do your best, that is the best thing. Right. And I, and it, I took it on and I firmly believe it. And I think that the world would be a much better place if we could all do what we, we love. Right. We'd do a great job, a whole lot better. Yeah. Um, so I think that that kind of re resonated. But I think the whole kind of sense of justice and fighting injustice and not just this apathy you know like in australia there's a really strong sense of apathy because it's a quite a beautiful country we haven't had a war we're quite well off everyone's kind of comfortable right. and safe and secure i mean not everyone but you know yeah. so that they're, they're, they're quite kind of apathetic and they don't fight back if they see something go wrong they don't always really stand up against it and I think the thing that kind of, for me, was triggering was you can't just let that shit go past. You, you have to challenge it and we can change it. Change is possible even. And maybe they were kind of the, the fundamentals. It's a very hard question. We still don't know why <laughs> you feel different uh, from on, on this. I, love, I give you a song to think a bit more about it. Second chance. Uh, <laughs> this is tough. This is turning into psychotherapy. Yeah, right. I didn't know we should go there. Okay, no. <laughs> Look, um, I think. Um, okay, I give you an, uh, an, uh, a clue from that I got from other guests and that we often talk about as well. Um, there's a dimension of self-esteem, probably of like um, I can. I have enough self-esteem to uh, to go and do something about it because a lot of people that are not getting organized, mobilizing, and so on are fearing um, well, failure, failure, or the way others are going to look at them. Why? Why do you think you you did not fear that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that, the, but I think that maybe, maybe I hadn't read or heard enough stories of change. So I, like, I came from this very conservative space that I didn't, I wasn't exposed to these stories of, right? 
you know, I didn't know anything about the end of slavery. I didn't know anything about the end of apartheid. I didn't know anything about okay. anything, you know. Yeah. And so being exposed to that story of the possibility of change and that change is possible maybe and that actually each individual has a part to play in making that change possible. Mm. Yeah, I guess. But Yeah, maybe also the... The, just simply the inspiration of of the story. So it could also be maybe something around the story of that of that person that you, in in the book. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a really challenging one. I don't know if there's an, a very good answer. Um, But I, I do think that it is part of that thing of that people think that other people will judge them or that they can't do it. I mean, I think there really just is that concept. Why would we bother trying? Because we might. We might not win or will probably fail. And I think that um, if you don't work in change and activism and campaigning, it's really easy to think that way. Right. But once you get more exposed to more stories and you meet more amazing people, you're like, oh, actually, they're all just normal people like me. And they've decided that they think this is really worth fighting for. And then eventually, actually... Wow, if you, yeah, you learn from other people, you can actually really change shit. Yeah. And this is kind of It's okay, you can swear on the show. Yeah, right. Sorry, I figured you'd just beat <laughs> me okay. out otherwise, no, no, Camille. Okay. <laughs> no, there's no editing here. Um, but yeah, um, it's interesting. And I think that this is not going any better, this, this in, in society, like the evolution of things. It, I mean, it seems to me that more and more people are complacent and then maybe at the extreme opposite some people are more and more engaged or do you feel engagement is growing like uh, across your few years of <laughs> activism what how do you see the trend evol uh, evolving well i mean i haven't been involved in activism in europe or uh, at this kind of international level for as long in australia i think activism has an engagement in social change has actually really increased in recent years but people's focus has been on different issues at different times mm. so there's been a for example there's been a huge growth of activism for, in support of the LGBTI community in Australia and we just finally had a referendum that voted for gay marriage right. and that campaign has been huge and, and really fantastic at engaging a lot of young people. Um, and so I think even though the challenges are greater now in terms of social justice and environmental justice and the challenges we face are definitely greater, I think we're still, you know, activism is, is also still rising and we will always have apathy. Okay. Um, yeah, let's listen to one more song. Um, I prepare the next question. Uh, because I don't want to ask just the first question I have in mind right now.
Okay, so now one thing I'm, I was wondering, maybe to, to conclude uh, this, uh, this exchange, because you, you have to go, and I'm, I always have like really busy people on the show that leave while I'm playing the last song. It's, <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really, it's, it's hard to make enough time for those kind of, of discussions and I'm, I'm really glad that you, you could make it uh, on the busy, busiest day of the year. Um, what, how is change different or how are change makers different in Europe than in Australia or other places that you had a chance to uh, work with uh, around the world? What, maybe in the system, like um, we, we are usually referring to European legislation as... As a, oh, the the mechanisms are, are you know quite productive uh, for European society on on environment on environmental matters. Maybe there are some limitations as well. But how how do you see this from from yeah the outside or let's say uh, coming mm. from the outside? Well, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question exactly, but I think that Europe is a. I mean, there's obviously lots of things that are really really similar uh, in terms of campaigning and activism. Um, and, but one of the things that I think is interesting and quite challenging is that in the EU especially, it seems that because of the EU parliament, ha you know, they, the, e the EU seems to adopt quite good laws. I mean, it takes a long time and it's very hard work and I know there's a lot of campaigning that goes into that, but then... The really challenging thing about campaigning in Europe is you, you get that, but then the people that implement the laws are the ones in the national member states. Exactly as it is with fisheries, it's similar on right. all other issues. Um, you know, air pollution, water, marine protected areas, climate change, plastics, all of it. And so you, you think you got this win because you did this huge European campaign and you got this European legislation and then there's another fight to be had at the national level. Right. And if you don't do that, then you actually didn't really win that big European right. um, thing. And I, for me, that's one of the most interesting and difficult concepts to understand. Yeah. You know, because uh, I didn't... I don't think... Well, certainly, I, I, I just don't think that that's really comprehensible for many people who, who work outside of, of the EU system. Right. And, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to think about that. <laughs> I knew I didn't answer your question. No, no. You yeah, no, you did. You did. It's an interesting, you know, uh, it's an interesting comment. What I mean, I think from cam campaigning and an activism sense, actually, it's really, really similar as it is in the Southern Hemisphere and, right. you know, we all use similar strategies and things because they work and because it's about talking to people and it's about convincing power holders yeah. to make change. Right. But depending on how many levels you have to make that change at. Last question. Um, a young activist starting up just now uh, needs a, c a couple of tips from Rebecca Hubbard. What, what <laughs> would you say? Um, what would I say? Well, it's a long marathon make sure <laughs> that's discouraging it's not a tip <laughs> no it is it's a marathon and it's totally worthwhile but make sure you have fun doing it because if you don't have fun doing it and you don't enjoy the beauty in our world while you're doing it then what's the point of doing it right. I mean for me making change is about making the world more beautiful and more amazing and if we don't 
stop and look after ourselves and remind ourselves what it is that's beautiful and amazing about it, mm. then we can't, we can neither sustain ourselves to continue in that fight uh, and we also lose sight about what we're trying to do. What is your pronostic for this year, uh, AgriFish Council? Because this interview is going to be published in, in Q1 next year. We will put the link to the press release just to see <laughs> if you were right. But how ambitious um, are you thinking here? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I, I, I expect our press release is going to say we're uh, outraged, unsurprised, but still, yeah, pretty, pretty disappointed, uh, highly disappointed with the level of ambition that comes out of this council meeting. Pretty sure it's not going to look very good, but it's a step up for 20, 2019. So this one's going to be, this is probably going to be a pretty bad outcome, but I predict that December 2019, we should have a different story. All right. Maybe we can have you back then. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I would like to really thank you for taking the time and sharing with us your thoughts. Um, you can see the video version of this interview on YouTube. Share with your friends. Uh, send this podcast to three people that you think would enjoy it. I would like to, um, well, yeah, thank you again. See you soon. Uh, we'll talk probably tomorrow to debrief <laughs> on what happened this, this night. Uh, keep up the good work in the meantime. Thanks, Camille.